Welcome to the second episode of Inside Infrastructure, an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast supported by PwC Australia. I'm Adrian Dwyer. And I'm Ilya Zak from PwC's Infrastructure and Urban Renewal team. So, Adrian, any exciting infrastructure experiences in the last few weeks? Well, we're infrastructure nerds, so the degree of excitement is probably isolated to a small number of people. But it has been exciting in Australia this week because it's been hot. Um, and how did that uh, affect you? Well, uh, well, I just sat with the air conditioning on, but so did most of Australia. So um, there's an app I'm currently obsessed with called Pocket NEM, so Pocket National Energy Market. And what, does it, gives you, what does it do? So it gives you live pricing in the national energy market. So um, I've become slightly obsessed with it because you can see in five-minute increments what the price is to buy electricity in the national electricity market for um, the, the wholesale price of electricity. And what did you find? Um, so what's fascinating when there's not much sun but it's really hot like it's been in South Australia and Victoria over the past week so there's not much solar energy um, but there's huge demand because everybody's got the air conditioning on and they're all inside um, you see the prices spike so they're typically when I look at it like maybe $100 a megawatt hours maybe the, the normal price at one stage it was the market was capped out at 14000 or $14,500 a megawatt hour Um but like to the point where I've got kind of obsessed with this app and checking it, you know, like 40 times a day, checking what, what the price is. For absolutely no reason, I don't have to buy energy at that price. I've got a retail contract. So there's absolutely no point in me doing it, but I kind of thought it was cool. It is interesting. Yeah, it's kind of, and you can see the different prices between all the different states. You can see the electricity moving between the states, so the market is constantly trying to find equilibrium. So pocket NIM. Yeah, and we spoke to Kerry Schott um, in our last podcast. It's kind of the... Um, you can see on a real-time basis how some of the things she's talking about happening with the different um, types of generation coming into the market. It's a cool app. Uh, what have you been up to? Um, well, I got to try out a credit card payment on the uh, on the train the other day for the first time, which is pretty exciting, using a credit card instead of my Opal, Opal card. So Opal's the system in Sydney for the touch card system that's right uh, opal is the contactless uh payment uh, ticketing system for for sydney and um recently it's been uh expanded to contactless credit cards on the train and light rail network and i tried that for the first time it worked all right uh it worked seamlessly the only flaw in the process was actually me um i tapped on very excitedly with my credit card but listening to a podcast on my way out I tapped off as a force of habit with my Opal card so you got charged <laughs> twice I, got, I did get charged a default fare twice in that case because once on the credit card once on the Opal card but um, had I not been the problem the experience I think would have been pretty seamless and it's um, at some stage I'll be using uh, maybe maybe the credit cards will take over and we'll just be using our our phones to tap on and off well I've got Opal a network. Um, my, my watch has a um, NFC chipping it so i've used the contactless with my watch i don't have to go out with anything other than my well clothes obviously (laughs) but i don't have to go out with like a wallet or a phone or anything it can all be done it's my watch it's pretty incredible it's um i guess london has had it for since since 2013 and sydney best i can tell is one of the first cities still one of the first cities in the world to to roll it out so widely so uh yeah that was my that was my exciting experience for infrastructure experience of the last few weeks. So talking about paying for transport our guest today is CEO of Transurban Scott Charlton uh, one of Australia's biggest transport providers. Scott does a great job of explaining who he is and what he does so we'll go straight to the interview. So hi Scott welcome and thanks for joining us. Um if we just cast back for context and think about um young Scott Charlton in Texas if we asked that young Scott Charlton um, what do you think if we said he was going to be a CEO of, of one of Australia's largest companies? What would he say? Uh, if it was back in uh, sort of those middle school years, he probably wouldn't tell the difference between Australia and Austria like typical, <laughs> uh, maybe uh, stereotypical Americans. So um, I think he would be pretty uh, amazed that that's where he ended up from uh, a place like uh, Dallas, Texas to be in a beautiful country and living in Sydney and Melbourne. So uh, I think he'd be pretty impressed with uh, with the outcome. So you so. didn't, as a kid, you didn't have aspirations of moving around the world? Or? Oh, look, you know, when uh, when you grow up in Texas and, and you start out with everything's bigger than Texas and 
uh, people don't consider uh, there's much outside of Texas. Uh, I think it's sometimes, and um, it didn't until I got uh, into university and, and graduate school is really when I got interested in a, in a much wider concept. And uh, you know, all friends and family uh, that I have, basically all of them are, are still in Texas. I mean, some of them left, but they all come, they all come back. So I'm the uh, anomaly that uh, that has left and never returned. But um, I just really enjoy being part of a, a much bigger picture. And I think what's exciting about Australia is that we are so impacted by global events and everyone is so well aware of our place in the global society. Um, but at the same time, a small enough country where uh, you can know everyone and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's quite fun to be involved in, in all these different deals with the same people over, over decades for me. Were there particular things that you excelled at at the time? That um, were you an athlete? Were you a, a mathem- mathematician? What was the what were the interests that guided you? Yeah, no, I uh, I uh, I did play basketball, so that was my sporting passion. I was um, just for for anyone that can't see you, how tall are you, Scott? You're tall uh, just uh, just about six foot six. <laughs> yeah, so, there uh, you go. And uh, look to um, just to make it clear on uh, on my college basketball team, I was the shortest person on my team. That's so, right. So, uh, It'd be unsurprising that Ilya didn't play basketball yeah. in high school. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah. offered. I was. I was a bench warmer. Bench warmer. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has their place and roles. Yeah. Yeah, There's sports for every, all kinds. Um, but uh, I actually wanted to be an architect. Uh, and uh, as my uh, one of my high school teachers told me that I couldn't draw uh, to save my life, <laughs> but I was very good at math, and uh, so I ended up becoming an electrical engineer. Right. So um, some of people know the stories. My first job was designing laser guidance bomb systems. I've read uh, that. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. pretty incredible. So that was interesting um, and uh, has uh, has served me well for those people who have threatened me over my career. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, in all seriousness, that was that was really interesting and then and got into the world of infrastructure and finance and, and haven't turned back and just really have a passion for of the industry because you see the impact it has on the communities uh, in a positive way and also just that it, it, it's there to see, I guess, delivered for or at least uh, for prosperity state, prosperity state. But uh, I guess uh, I just like the tangible result. It's interesting that you mentioned that the and that architecture is what you're interested in, but the, but it, it turned into engineering because we find a lot of a lot of the industry, whether it's in the engineering firms or not, is um, it's it's obviously very beneficial to have that engineering um, engineering background. Is that something that has been pretty fundamental for you as far? Because I guess the role now is is draws probably more on your mm-hmm. finance uh, finance background. Is engineering a really f- uh, useful grounding for for anyone that's getting in, into this kind of area? Yeah, I think, I think it's gone through stages. I think my, you know, when you become a CEO, most of it comes down, I think, which you can affect is strategy and, and, and people leadership. So if I look back through my career, I think the best thing that engineering teaches you is just methodically and persevering and solving problems. Um, and so you learn to solve problems logically, whether they're engineering problems or, or, or other problems. But then over my career, um, learning much more on the on the people side and, and hopefully directing strategy and leadership, which is, I think, when you become a, a, a CEO is where you can have the biggest impact because you are a bit of a distance away from the business. Um, but as just a, a little insight into transurban culture, I'm also known as the chief architect. So okay. just because you build infrastructure doesn't mean it has to be ugly or bad design. Right. So um, you get pretty ho- involved in it, the. In the uh, oh look, I uh, I was on the design. Uh, I was on the design review, the urban design review panel for Westgate Tunnel. Right. Uh, along with Victoria's chief architect and quite a group of illustrious uh, architects and and designers, I had zero qualification. Okay. But because we were paying for the tunnel, I got to sit on the panel. <laughs> so I think it was one of those sops to uh, to my uh, one of my passions. But uh, so, what feature should we expect that's a Scott Charlton signature? Unfortunately, they're not more my ideas. We did encourage, and which is which is good to see in Australia, which is very different in the U.S. And you know, Victoria, when when they do the big infrastructure projects, they actually allocate a significant amount of of money in there for urban design to uh, to be a positive impact in the community. That Westgate Tunnel was one of the first major infrastructure projects to actually incorporate Aboriginal design into the whole urban design. I so see. That's striking about Melbourne when you go. Yeah. It, th- there's a lot more of that kind of striking iconic. Components so CityLink's got them with the 
the the the big yellow um like girder that comes it's out actually called the zi- uh, people refer to it as the cheese stick it's actually <laughs> it's actually a zipper was the original interpretation yeah, but right. i have to say that the light the new lighting on the sound tube that was that, that was my idea. oh the colored lighting <laughs> on the sound tube. Was, when we did the when we did the upgrade at ctw we said we need to do something here yeah. so that was that, that we really like that so we get the most tweets of any of our assets is the lighting on uh on that uh, sound tube now, so it's it's got its, it's that and the Balti Bridge have its own Instagram accounts that we didn't set have up. That, but, uh, okay, that so people taking take yeah fans taking sort of pictures of sunsets. So with that in you know with that series of interests in mind, if it wasn't the path that you have gone down, which is mostly um, well, it certainly ended up in Australia. But what what would you have been doing otherwise? So would you be a you know an astronaut, a chef, or a maybe a basketball player? Too tall to be an astronaut. <laughs> uh, too short to be a basketball player. <laughs> too, uh, yeah, don't like to clean up. Would never be a chef. I, I, I don't know. I, I think you know. And I try to impart. It's not really wisdom, but I don't think we ever end up where we intended to go. I I thought I would be an engineer in the more traditional sense, uh, particularly an electrical engineer in design. And I started my job was at Texas Instruments. Uh, and I never thought I'd get into finance and then down this path. So it's all quite exciting. So my, my career has taken sort of three big moves and obviously spent time uh, in construction, both CFO and operations, and um, you know learned, uh, learned a lot. And I think as long as you have the passion, and it's all always been around that infrastructure, and as long as you continue to have the, the passion and the enthusiasm, it's uh, that's the most in- important thing. That's what I tell my daughter. It really doesn't matter what she does; just have the passion for it and so have what, some fun. So, what we haven't said, what brought you to Australia? What was the you, know, you got your first job in Texas, and then now yeah, we see yeah. you halfway around the world. This is this is this is, it seems like we're getting way off uh, course, but yeah. I'm happy to try and go there. But uh, I uh, I spent a year again uh, backpacking, uh, going back to uh, you know interest in in probably a more global environment than some of my fellow. Uh, uh, Texans. Uh, I spent a year uh, backpacking after I did my first job and graduate degree and um, uh, came to, as part of that, came to Australia uh, and I actually met my wife in New Zealand uh, when I was backpacking. Um, we met there and ended up dating later and it's a long long story and, and two and a half years later we got married and we were living in, in the U.S. and spending time in New York and Boston uh, for the job I had at the time and um, we both thought we both really liked Australia. Let's just just come out. We'll go out there for a little bit. And we came here with four suitcases and no jobs and <laughs> just got off the plane. And we met someone at the airport who said, hey, we've got a spare room. Do you want to come stay there? We thought, sure, why not? So, you know, when you're young and yeah. stupid and that kind of stuff. So it was really good fun. And then, uh, yeah, so 28 years later. Uh, yeah, you had Two more here. suitcases than me. Mine's yeah. the same story, but it was two suitcases. <laughs> And so it wasn't a, it wasn't a career move. It was a it was a yeah. li- lifestyle move. But, it was uh, lifestyle. Yeah. yeah, it's fair to say that most people think our roads are free, or at least should be. H- how do you go about managing this community perception that roads should be free and continue to be publicly owned? Yeah, look, and and, and you know, every day we have to um, earn our right to operate and and own these assets and. You know, we, we need to do that, so we need to be better than the alternative. And, and, you know, if we look at some of the stats that our roads in New South Wales and Victoria are 80% safer than the alternatives. Right. We save our customers across our networks about 320,000 hours a day. Uh, and a lot of that couldn't have been done if the private funding hadn't been there because there's a timing issue from, from the government. But we do realize that uh, we have to earn that right um, every day, and so we're continually trying to prove, improve our reliability, uh, our um, technology, uh, less friction with our customers, and I can go through all the apps, and, and we've reduced fees and all the good things that we're currently doing because um, you know, we have to continue to earn that right um, to be custodians of these assets, and, and we think that's important not only for us and our long-term sustainability, but for the industry uh, as a whole, that, that you can see the private sector involvement actually brings those those benefits, and we appreciate that. At the end of the day, we're not here to be loved by the the public, but hopefully they respect 
the service that we can provide and the benefits that we provide to themselves and to to the economy. And um, you know, with technology, that's a little bit easier or getting easier because we can make the interactions easier with customers, and we can also demonstrate better through the different apps and, and things we can do, the actual savings and, and benefits uh, that, that people do. I do think, and one of the reasons I really love Transurban is that over time we do think, we can talk about technology and other things, that more kilometers are being driven, but we're, I think, in a position where it's a win-win. So the better our networks perform, the better it is for our customers, uh, but the better it is for our security holders. So. I do like it as an industry where I think um, people can benefit, uh, all stakeholders can benefit. I've heard you talk about disrupting transurban and internally disrupting. So from an outsider's perspective, you think it's sort of pipes and roads, it's fixed assets, it doesn't seem like something that's intuitively open to being disrupted. Maybe you could just talk us through how you came to that conclusion and how you've pursued the objective. Yeah, I think there's a, there's, there's a few major components. One is obviously our customers and how we interact with our customers. So, you know, we have tag-based uh, and uh, we also have video matching fees if, if you choose or don't have a tag. But, you know, we decided to go out and create a GPS uh, app for tolling and that cost us some money. And there was no reason to do that other than there's a convenience. And if we didn't do it, someone else was likely to do it. Uh, and it's been quite successful. We've had over 500,000, over half a million trips taken with our GPS app. Can you talk, talk, talk through that, what that is? Uh, and so instead of having a tag or uh, <laughs> looking at your video uh, license plate, we have a, a specific app that uses geo ring fencing. Uh, and if you download the app, uh, it will tell you if you've gone through the toll road right. and then ask you if you'd like to pay immediately and it uses your credit card. So and then real it'll time, cancel out the video camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll cancel out everything. So real time, you can choose to, to do your tolling and pay for it and how you want to pay for it. Uh, and so it provides that convenience. Now, there is a, a small fee associated with that, but that, again, is your choice. We always say if you're going to use the toll roads quite a bit, obviously set up an account, it's more efficient. But for a lot of uh, casual users or uh, people who use hire cars or some millennials who don't want to give any of their data uh, up, then, uh, then they can choose that choice. And it's one of the first in the world. And as I said, we've had over half a million trips in just the last six months with that new app. So, so if I'm a passenger, then it uh, it asks me, but because I, I wasn't. I'm not so if you had three people in the car and and you all three had the app on, uh, it could ask you, do you want to pay? And then you would just say no, and you could decide who wants yeah, to pay. Okay. And all that. So it it double checks and it won't let you pay twice for the same for the same yeah, trip. Okay. So it'll cancel out if you try to pay twice. So again, you can determine how you want it and. And you can do, but again, it won't, and it won't let you uh, use it while you're traveling. So it'll only come up when you stop. So from a safety perspective as well. But that's, sorry, that's getting into detail. No, it's actually quite an interesting. Um, it, it's it's also an answer to the previous question, which is that your your that that continuous drive for innovation is is one of the ways that you are potentially able to demonstrate value to the community in a way that you wouldn't expect from a, a publicly owned motorway or, or, or toll road. There, um, sorry to interrupt you, but there is a as there's a perception that monopolies don't innovate, be they private or public, because you've got people at one end of your... Well, so I have to stop you, though. You can't use the word monopoly because the ACCC said we're not a monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> Things with natural monopoly characteristics but that aren't monopolies. So with, with contracted, with, government contracts. With yes. government contract and a concession. But there would be a perception that you wouldn't have really incentive to innovate like that. Well, I, I guess in you're right in the short term. If you were short-term focused, I mean, that costs us money. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's not making us additional money. It's a convenience factor. Uh, for our customers. But when you go back to long-term disruption issues, we do believe that you know, over the next 20 years or so, there'll be some sort of road user pricing type environment, and that will involve all these technologies and all of our customers. And if you look at companies, you know, and there's so many famous stories, whether you look at um, you know, Kodak and Film or Ericsson or, or sorry, um, uh, uh, Nokia. 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 Yeah, where you say, okay, we got this, doing well, let's just ride this out for as long as we can mm-hmm. um, and you know those companies that are sustainable and for all their stakeholders over time they have to continue to I don't like the word reinvent but they have to continue to evolve and I guess we've formed the view that we have a great base to work from we have to continue as I said to earn our our, our right to license to operate every day but then we have to prepare for 
what will be out there in 20 or 30 years. I personally, this is not necessarily a company view, I personally believe that before the end of a lot of these concessions, we'll see the whole world change in the transport sector. And obviously, we'd like to play a role in helping to shape that and bring value, again, to not only our security holders, but our, our customers so as well. I think we're both quite keen to talk about that future. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 it's, and it's also, it's, it's, and the segue, I guess, from, it sounds like you're setting up for it, with the the various innovative um, initiatives that you've undertaken, and it, um, it, it, I guess you're very you're very outspoken on that, um, on on the need for some kind of rational road pricing mechanism. Hmm. The economics of it are not the problem. The economics are obvious. You know, the the more Teslas are there, the less excise is there. Yeah. Um, but it's not happening. Or for for all intents and purposes, there's a lot of talk about it, and. It, no one can see a sort of clear path to to um, to having some kind of rational road pricing mechanism. And the closest thing, actually, is the the toll road network that Transurban operates. That's probably the closest we can get to it at the moment. Um, what what what's holding us back? What is it in your experience engaging with engaging with the community, engaging with government? Is it a modern thing that's stopping us? Is it is it uh, just a really challenging problem? Well, I think. I mean. Um we all know that, and probably most people listening to this know just the, the challenging political problem. And it, and it's easy to, for us to throw it on to the politicians or the bureaucrats, but obviously it's up to us as industry and others to sell it to the wider public. And as, as most people know, we had our road usage trials and a few other things that we're we're trying to do. And, and there is stuff happening in the background. It's not public. Obviously, government's going forward with its um, freight road usage uh, charging um uh, implementation or pilot so things are slowly happening I think unfortunately for most large changes that it takes a bit of a crisis so I think until it comes to a more crisis sort of inflection point um, uh, there'll be uh, probably not the opportunity for a wholesale change maybe there will be I mean uh, I've always talked about the introduction of electric char- cars as the right time to um, start that journey because there can be a transition period given that cars, electric cars don't pay for um, for the road usage. Um, unfortunately, though, it, it sometimes takes more of a, a crisis. I just hope that the industry and others, if that opportunity comes, that we're ready with the right model rather than just uh, a knee-jerk reaction and we're not ready for the model. The thing is, though, with that, with the crisis, <clears throat> waiting for the crisis, it seems like, and I don't know if your modeling has, has considered this, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've modeled everything out for the next 30 years, but there, it could be a situation where um, it's actually kind of a frog-boiling scenario where if the if the drop off in fuel excise is slow enough the grant funding from the rest of uh, the budget will just increase slowly and eventually we'll just forget that there ever was any kind of usage charge um, or, or or do you do, does your do your forecast point to a cliff where at some stage excise will drop off quickly enough that it's noticeable i think we you know we see the 20s i uh, sorry we I guess I'd, I should speak more personally. Um, I mean, I would say the 20s is the will be the dawn, really, of the electric car age, and by the end of the 20s, you'll see significant uh, portion of the fleet being sold is electric. So I do think it'll drop off pretty quick on the next decade. But I think if you combine that then with population growth on the other side, uh, road travel becomes um, cheaper uh, as well through electric cars. I think you'll just see pressure on. Uh, governments to um, to spend more on infrastructure, and that money has to come somewhere. and And I think I'm a, a firm believer in as best you can a user pays model, because again, as we all know, if you don't charge for it, it gets misused. As long as you have clearly the protections for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged. And there's a fascinating example that I don't know if it exists anywhere in, else in the world, really. But again, one of the toll roads Transurban operates. There's it's just the clear as day M4. They took the toll away, became a parking lot, tolls back, and you can drive on it again. Mm. Um, it's it, it's uh, it, it, it's very evident. I, I, it's do you do you expect that to be on all, the same same for any kind of same impact in terms of managing demand for any kind of um, any road? Well, it was very clear when we were in our road usage study when you started presenting the and and we had some financial incentives when you started presenting the financial outcomes and incentive people change their behaviour. 
and it was almost even just changing their behavior and seeing how much they were driving and how many trips they were doing. Just people don't intuitively actually know how much they're actually driving and how many trips they're taking or how inefficient their trips are that I could have done four trips out instead of six trips out um, and, and accomplished my objectives. So, you know, it's just presenting uh, that information and that cost uh, to the community. And once they see that, they're actually very open uh, to uh, considering a different uh, charge, particularly when they understand and realize that the existing fuel arrangement is actually a regressive tax uh, against most of the uh, against most of the community. But it is a very difficult issue to explain, and I don't think we can just blame the uh, the politicians or the bureaucrats. It's it's an industry uh, wide issue, but it will have to be addressed. Coming back to you could have the boiling frog where the fuel excise just drops away, but at some point somebody's got to raise a tax to fund infrastructure. So, so I guess it's worth delving down into that because it, it, it is a prickly problem right now. I think part of the reason why politicians won't do something right now is, is they're responding to the public fear about having a, a, a little black box in every car that records everywhere you're going. Um, if we don't get in at the thin end of the wedge on electric vehicles, we just have the same problem in five years' time. There's too many people that are affected by this so is there, is there a window of opportunity that you see where this has to be dealt with uh yeah i mean my so my personal view is that that window over the next five years so most of the electric cars that we'll see brought into australia are at the higher end of the of the price range because of the first generation and and therefore it, 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 i guess the follow-on from that is the people likely to afford those cars uh, can afford the road use uh, pricing type model and should pay for use of the road. So if you started that in and then as the fleets get bigger and, and, and more efficient, I guess one of the issues is if you tell the, the traveling public over the next five or 10 years, buy an electric car, it's much cheaper, it's much more environmentally friendly, uh, and, and um, this is a great thing. And then you try to retrofit that after everyone's made their capital decision. Mm. Uh, again, you're creating distorted uh, environments. So I think you think that windows the next five years as, as everyone introduces their electric mm. fleets. But, but it's interesting that that point, though, because they, there's, a, there's an interaction there with uh, an environmental policy that, that isn't really the domain traditionally of, of transport policy. But... Um, you know, electric, in Australia, I guess vehicles aren't responsible for that the same proportion of emissions that they are in in the U.S. The U.S. is um, it's substantially substantially higher, mm. um, but there is still a legitimate argument that well, you know, I want to. Are you really going to um, disincentivize my ability to pollute less? Um, do you do you do you see that do, do you see enough of uh, do you see a, a clear argument to to against that or is there do we need to resolve an environmental policy in order to enable this uh, more more discreet conversation to occur? Sure, I think you're doing, dealing with two environmental issues. One is first. Um, no matter what type of vehicle it is, because even if you're using an electric vehicle, obviously somewhere electricity is being generated. Absolutely. Um, uh, it is more environmentally friendly through that network sort of process. But so the first is if you price the road so that it is used more efficiently or optimally, and then obviously you can price that against public transport or support public transport so that the whole network is priced to be efficiently used and optimally used. That is the best environmental outcome for the road network. Then you have a different issue about what do you do about the types of fuel and how they're incentivized and should electric vehicles then have a capital discount or a different discount or um, petrol, traditional petrified vehicles have a, a, a penalty because of their emission. I think you've you got to separate two issues. The first issue I see is you've got to get the most efficiency out of the transport network as a whole and that'll give you the best environmental outcome and then there's a separate debate on how you deal with the fuel. Yeah, I think from, from my perspective, I think the worst outcome would be if we started saying, well, <clears throat> we're going to start charging for people to charge their vehicles, if that makes sense, because uh, I would charge my electric vehicle from solar panels if I had the choice or if I had an electric vehicle. So it, it seems counterintuitive that I would be penalised for, for charging from the sun. Um, 
when in actual fact the impediment on the road network is that I'm taking up lane kilometres and the roads having to be provided for me and maintained for me. Um, and right now, if I was in a Tesla, I wouldn't be paying, or if I was in a BMW i3 or another a Nissan Leaf, I wouldn't be paying when the person next to me in you know, a Holden or a Ford or a Toyota is paying. Hmm. Current settings certainly have potential to be quite regressive with electric cars, and it's important because the more vulnerable parts of the community are sensitive to the price without necessarily being able to change their behaviour. So just how much should we be relying on pricing to flatten out demand through the day? I guess there's two issues right now. The way the the pricing works is, or it has worked, it's I guess it's crossing that point. Is fuel excess has more than recovered what's gone into the road, so right. you know, it hasn't been hypothecation. And I think, I think treasurers and treasuries are now finally get to the point where they understand hypothecation needs to occur. That's the first rule of transparency. If I'm paying this, I want to see where it's going. Um, and I think most of us in the industry would 100% agree uh, with that. I think there is a community sort of obligation uh, or, or community expectation. Uh, and that then goes back to you have to balance out, well, if there is a cost of that congestion because everyone wants to travel in peak time, therefore you have to design the transport network to run at peak time. There, There is a cost of that and someone has to bear that cost. So that cost can either be borne in congestion so we don't cover it. Yep, yep. It can be born in, you got to pay for it, but there might be a community expectation that I can't. Therefore, there has to be taxes or, or somewhere from someone else. Now, someone much smarter and with more political nuances and economist background uh, should make those decisions, but at least you should have those choices. And right now, we don't have those choices on one of them. We can't manage demand. Absolutely. Yeah. And the main, pe- the main way people are paying for um, congestion right now is with their own time. Yeah. That's, that's the... And but there's a there's a danger of getting too complex about it. I mean, people understand toll roads to the extent that they pay a fee, they get a premium service, they get from A to B quicker than they would if they went on the um, free at the point of use alternative. My my fear with talk introducing this argument around demand and shifting peak demand, it's just too complex to to explain, and then it falls at the first hurdle. Like, it seems to me that we should be dealing with the funding issue. We've got a dying funding stream in fuel excise. Let's solve that first and then deal with how you use, if and how you use price to manage demand later. Because otherwise there's going to be no pricing mechanism to apply price signals to. Yeah. And I think and I think that's right. And I think it gets too, it can be too complicated, particularly to bring on a system that was going to manage demand in the first instance. I mean, we, we do have examples now in the U.S. where we have our dynamic, uh, price lanes, right? Where you pay for capacity, and then um, so can, can you explain that because people might not be familiar with sure. The, the so we have a, what we call express lanes that run parallel to existing free lanes, and if you uh, um, have three vehicles, you can travel for free in those lanes, or if you're a bus or public transport, you travel for free. Sorry, otherwise, if, if you have if you have three vehicles, you sorry, can, three people, three in passengers, vehicles, right, three right, passengers. Right. Sorry, uh, otherwise, and you can travel free. Otherwise, you pay to travel in the lanes, and we'll take the I ninety five. The average toll uh, there is, I think, is now up to about seven dollars over th- sort of thirty five miles, but it can be over forty dollars during peak times. But you can save an hour and a half, so you can try and manage demand. But what does happen then is we do get some people who then will start sitting by the side of the road around the peak hours or the off-peak hours waiting for demand to fall or whatever. And so then you start potentially clogging up the system that people are waiting yeah. you know, for certain things to, to happen. And you know, we actually see that when some of the stuff in New York and elsewhere with mobility as a service from Uber, that Uber's actually caused a lot more congestion because they're waiting to do more Uber jobs. So there can be the unintended consequences. And I think, as you go back, Adrian, the first thing is to get a funding mechanism in place that at least people see the connection between the kilometers I drive and um, you know the cost I the cost I pay. Make that connection first before we start getting the nuances of, of managing you know certain demand. How in in if you there's quite a similar kind of um, challenge in electricity of um, managing the peak. But you for electricity you only need to shave off a, a very small percentage f- to save billions of dollars in capex. Mm. Um, a, a small percentage off the peak. How much of your uh, of a how much demand needs to shift from the most congested roads that are in your network for it to actually be optimally um, to still to still get people 
uh, to where they want to go in an appropriate amount of time. Sure. Well, I mean, I think everyone just has to look at school holidays. Mm-hmm. You're only talking about a you know sort of five percent shift, and it can make a big difference. So that five yeah, five percent yeah. is enough. Yeah, yeah, and that can make a big that can make a big difference. The only caveat I'd say on that is you still got population that's growing at an extraordinary rate. Right. So, you know, the infrastructure is still struggling to keep up with the. So somebody's struggling to deal with the existing demand, and then you've got to deal with the the future demand as well. So. Um, but it only takes, as you know, most of school holidays um, uh, can make a big difference to uh, to peak travel. Um, before we move on from road user charging, you, you mentioned the the road user study that you did. Um, so it's a, a couple of years ago now, yep. I, I think you did it. I, I'd just like to just dive into it for a bit because you had an opportunity not to try and sell this idea to people in a thirty minute. A thirty-second segment on the radio. You had people go through the process. Can you just explain what you did and how it was set up and what the results? Yeah, and uh, so we set up a road usage study with um, quite a few thousand drivers. Um, and what we were testing was not the, as you said, the science of it. The science is pretty easy, but h- how do you how do you um, sell? Not sell is not the right word, but how do you communicate? what's currently happening, uh, what could happen, and then people's, I guess, feel or awareness or acceptance of it. And what was quite interesting is when you start, there is little understanding of current transport, particularly road funding, about the connection of fuel excise and GST and rego and how all this fits together. So a lot of perception that roads are free uh, once you pay your rego and then um, you pay for fuel that goes in your car. But Again, a lot of little understanding of how much of that is actually um, tax and um, fuel excise. Uh, and then when you start explaining the system, and we had GPSs in the cars, we track people's movements, how many times they travel, and we put them on different systems, a distance-based system, a number of trip-based system, uh, and um, went through that whole process of, of education. And when you start and talked about a road usage system, there was almost no recognition or acceptance of it and then when we finished it we were up into the 60s and 70 percent said well this is the way you got to go of course you would go this way because it makes sense and the distance based was actually the most sort of acceptable one and again when people saw that what they were doing they were changing their behavior um, when they actually got the information how much it costs what it could mean uh, and then they were actually uh, became advocates. In fact, some of them afterwards said, can we keep the GPS because we want to keep tracking what we're doing because <laughs> we just find it interesting. And we said, no, because it costs us money. But um, <laughs> get your government to get a road usage system and you'll be good. But um, uh, so, y- you know, but it is not uh, just an overnight easy sort of shift on that that process. But we were able to dispel and we took a broad community all over Melbourne and we were able to dispel, you know, quite a lot of urban, I think, myths to that group who actually came uh, advocates but to go out and say today we're going to do a cordon charge or today we're going to do it just would be a disaster it's a it's a long process that yeah we see every time it's raised shock jocks are yeah uh, fairly vitriolic about not doing it 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 does have a very it does have very convenient three-word slogans that that can be used to to argue against it which is a, a challenge a communications challenge really and it's it's not an overnight um, overnight solution but like you said experiments like this showing evidence that maybe you know because for a lot of people I, I assume they'd save money plenty I think plenty of people particularly the ones uh, well, in it, the bush it gives you a chance to make a choice Absolutely. so that's the, the, the issue now is you don't really have a choice so say you're uh, a pensioner who drives once a month to the store your rego I don't know it could be a thousand dollars seven hundred dollars whatever the number is you, you, you know, you're paying a rego, but you're hardly ever using Absolutely. the road, and that, and that's that's not fair. And then when you've got, if you live in the outer suburbs and and you're paying more for fuel because the fuel costs you more, first of all, to be in the outer suburbs because of the way they they charge, and then uh, you end up driving so much more, you're paying so much more than your fair share of the of the road. So it at least gives you a choice. And most of the models that we saw, you could set up a model that is cost neutral in effect and you know the automobile agencies were supporting of that that as long as the system doesn't cost any more than the current system but that money is hypothecated to transport it seems to be a willingness and acceptance at a high level to 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 move forward but then people would have a choice um we've spoken about electrification of vehicles we've spoken about road user charging you've also done some stuff on autonomous vehicles 
recently and my personal view is they're a lot further off into the future um, before that's a ubiquitous thing um, what, what do you think and tell us about the trials yeah sure so um, I, I think um, and there's a there's a great graph I forget who did it and, and I think we've been through peak hype I think we've been through peak hype on cabs autonomous vehicles and we're coming off the back of that and then if you look at uh, history with these technologies whether it's sort of personal computers or the internet or mobile phones peak hype usually occurs about 10 years before the reality <laughs> of it sort of taking off mm. Uh, and so I think we've been through peak hype on the cabs, and I think electric vehicles were probably about 10 years ago. I think that's why we're about to see uh, them start to take off. Um, so I think with, with cabs, we'll see big differences in the 2030s uh, out there. Uh, but, you know, all the incremental introduction, particularly electric cars with a number of features, will make our roads safer, but I don't think we'll see the big changes. In the when you say our roads, you mean... So overall, the, the, the whole network. Overall, the whole networks. But most, will they be mostly on your type of you know, big motorway type roads rather than uh, uh, environments? I, I guess when we, you look at the the, the long term introduction, we believe that the the motorway networks and the campus style networks, whether a hospital campus or university campus, so where you don't have a lot of interact, where you don't have high speed and a lot of other interaction. Uh, in a campus type environment or you're on a motorway so you don't have uh, interaction with pedestrians or a lot of other things we think that's where they'll first be mostly utilized but you know a lot of the features um, benefit the whole of the motorways but it's not until we see the 2030s that we think you'll start getting you know significant capacity improvements and, and other things and then you know the level four toward sort of the end of that decade making a, a big difference so I do agree it is a ways off, and a lot of the stuff that we see around some of the autonomous features and people trusting uh, their vehicles can be a bit dangerous at this stage. Um, but it's all moving in the it's all moving in the right direction, uh, and uh, we're pretty excited about the future. So we're doing a lot of trials with seven different car manufacturers that we're working with. It's just a lot of issues to be dealt with about: is it car to car communication? How much does the infrastructure communicate? Uh, how much data? Uh, how's the data? handled and moved so there's just a lot of sort of industry issues norms to be resolved over the next sort of, of decades and look we're just we're just um, uh, I guess trying to be involved we're obviously we're not uh, leading in, in in any sense of the uh, the calves but uh, clearly as a big infrastructure uh, owner we want to we want to be involved in how we can bring that forward because that helps our customers and and our network what what is uh what is and you know it's a it's a million dollar question nobody i don't think anyone really knows the answer but um you you talked about the 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 efficiency improvement which effectively is you know the the capacity improve the capacity of the roads improves the cost of cars can travel closer together and they're cheaper to operate as well they're safer that largely deals with the supply. There's, I, I find that a lot of these discussions tend to only deal with that sort of first-order impact of um, some truck drivers and, and taxi drivers, I guess, would find less employment in that first-order impact. But the, the second round, which is if, if with these autonomous vehicles, if the cost of travel collapses, and I think you've been on record mentioning that um, these mobility-as-a-service options are going to be cheaper than owning a car, what, what does what does it what does it mean in terms of you know discreetly the, the 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 road network that you operate? Do you anticipate actually actually an explosion in the number of vehicles that are going to that are going to be travelling on the network? Well, when you said it's a million dollar question, we we would see it globally as the trillion dollar question. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> because um, with this introduction of technology, longer term, I mean the benefits that flow globally to to the economies uh, of all these countries is is tremendous. Um, again, just from safety, you know, the lack of, uh, of safety incidents or, or safety benefits that feed onto the medical system and all the other things that are impacted by people hurt in the transport sector uh, and, and just through the efficiencies uh, of the economy because transport is such a big part, a big cost to the economy if we can get that much better. So it's sort of globally the trillion-dollar question. I guess what we see is less vehicles because they're being used more efficiently we see more kilometers being right. driven, and that's a combination of costs coming down, mobility as a service, uh, connected and autonomous vehicles, uh, and then just the productivity benefits. I mean, if you start going through that, and I know this is further away, whether you work in your car or play in your, whether it's a car or called a vehicle, a pod, or whatever it is, 
you know, you'd be able to be efficient in, in that travel mode, uh, less safety incidents. I mean, the, the flow on benefits and particularly for, again, for the disadvantaged or the disabled or, or uh, the young in these sectors that have been limited in their mobility, really uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. And I think that's why, again, why we're so excited about the future is people like Transurban and others can align with you know, people who are who are providing those type of services, we all we all benefit from this future. There's a very interesting interaction there with our earlier discussion about um, road pricing, because if and and I've seen there's a lot of there's a lot of concepts that have been developed about um, you know a, a rolling convenience store effectively, um, where it'll just travel around endlessly and people can and it can come to you and 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 it's just a small example of the kind of different mentality that that um, can permeate through the market when um, the cost of you, you don't have to pay for a driver um, and if you don't actually have to pay for the road then there's all kind that the road could get just complete, completely flooded with with um, uh, entities that are really they're monetizing a public asset. That's what they're doing, um, and it, it's a funny it's a it's a there's a there's a crossover there where if the roads <clears throat> if the roads are not priced, um, then all of a sudden the M5 might become you know a, a, a hotel. There's a lot of some of these concepts of, of cars that you know cars that you can sleep in. They'll take you from your house to house to work yeah, or something like that. If you can like do that. that, it won't take the premium M5. It's going yeah. to be free. <laughs> that, that's that's true. That's true. But <laughs> travel all night. I, I mean, how, that's it, do you see? Do you is that something that that kind of because I actually personally I we, we've been discussing how electric vehicles are the 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 crisis point for um, for road, for some kind of road pricing mechanism. For me, I think it's the onset of autonomous vehicles, and not because the the excise will the revenue will collapse, but just because all of a sudden so many new new vehicles are going to be using the roads. Is there, do you have a view on how those interact? Well, if you think of now, so if you think of Rego, you pay for Rego, and most cars capacity is used. I don't know, you know, it's it's less it's less than ten percent. So those ro- those vehicles aren't are only using the roads. So let's say ten percent of the time, or less than ten percent of the time. So you go down the most ability as a service route, and yes. Uh, you might have less cars, but say all the cars are being used 50 or 60 percent of the time. Right. So, if those cars aren't using petrol, so they're electric, then you got all these cars using the road a whole lot more, and and not not paying for it. I mean, you take the extreme example, and, and I won't particularly pick a vendor, but if you have a mobility as a service provider now driving a Tesla, they are being subsidized by Absolutely. by the New South Wales taxpayer Absolutely. to use the road network. Now. That's fine when it's a small portion, but that system just becomes unstable if uh, the more the further you go forward with that that kind of model. And you know, the private sector will find a way to monetize something that is free, so. as they do today. I mean, yeah. the, the 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 share bikes are, but a very small example yeah. of that. They're monetizing the footpath rather than a a free road but it's it's uh, it's it's inevitable and I to be honest before this discussion I hadn't really thought of of how the two those two those two developments might might interact but it's it, it, I've also I've also heard a similar similar um a s- similar forecast from the the CEO of Lyft um mm. Not not personally. I yeah, think yeah, he yeah. was mentioning it in another podcast, <laughs> but his his view was. Uh, I think he was discussing uh, Lyft's equivalent. I can't remember what it's called. Lyft Line, maybe the, their equivalent of the Uber Pool service. And the the suggestion was that um, the average car in America has it has an occupancy of one point one. Yeah. And if they can change that to one point two, every road is basically empty. You only need it in in their modeling. Yeah, but you need to. You need to. It, it needs to be one point two productive people in the vehicle because the driver <laughs> doesn't count. It's so there, just, there's two uh, people in there, and one of them's just driving around all day. Absolutely, and it can't just be an extra person that you've shoved in there. It, obviously, people need, that want but, to be in there. But but I think the issue with that is if you can get one point two people because it's transport has become cheaper. What it means is you actually get more trips. Because yeah, you get some induced demand. So yeah, yeah, that's the issue. Is that you know I, I just take the example of my daughter who uses you know mobility as a service all the time so for her it's just yeah i'm popping out and doing this i'm doing that 
you know, because it's just so easy, so cheap and so convenient, which she wouldn't normally do the trip. She'd make me do it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, there is upside. Final question from me. What's your favorite type of infrastructure and why? <laughs> okay so so oh, this is good okay all right uh i like tunnels when they're being built there's nothing better than a tunnel boring machine and we have the largest in the southern hemisphere arriving the second week of january uh on the docks in melbourne that's for westgate that's tunnel. for westgate tunnel so 15.8 meters um bella uh, has been her name uh so that's fantastic so i love uh watching the tunnels once they're built yeah you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a good bridge. It's hard yeah, to go good by. Bridge. Good, hard to go by a good bridge. Uh, you know, Balti, um, even the A25. Uh, yeah, it's hard to go the Gateway Bridge in in uh, in, in in Brisbane. It, it's hard to go by a good bridge. So, just just drawing on that, I, I know maybe it wasn't where you were going, Adrian. But what what is so you've got a TBM in going in the ground soon. What is Elon Musk doing that's other than his skates? What is this tunnel boring company of his doing that's supposed to be different? Look, I don't really want to get in a Twitter war with Elon <laughs> Musk, uh, given that he has had Twitter wars with other people in the past. But um, yeah, he's using a tunnel boring machine, which um, is the same tunnel boring machines that we all use in the industry. And is, they, he, is it and just they, smaller? Is that the. Well, it is smaller, but. I mean, we, we've got a – right now there's a tunnel boring machine with Westgate, which is a, a tunnel, a sewage yeah. uh, tunnel, which is about – Yeah, one. which is about – I think it's about three meters diameter, just over three meters. And so it's going – so his is – yeah, it's just uh, traditionally – you can – I don't know if you've seen the his video of, of his tunnel boring machine, and I think it goes for – I think it's a mile. I think it's a mile long or half a mile or something. I mean, you know, North Connects is nine kilometers – yeah, so. so did you say 15.8 meters? Mm-hmm. The, the diameter yeah, of the... So it's, tall, it's as tall as the dome on Flinders Street Station. Yeah, wow. So it's five containers stacked on top of each other. It's big. Uh, uh, and so that, there'll be a single so two carriageway. Yeah, so, so, so there's, two, there's two of them. Uh, and then uh, the design there is three lanes plus a bit of a breakdown lane. Yeah. Um, it's it's marked originally for two, but can go for three, and then a bit of a breakdown lane, and then because of the the width we needed to to have the lanes, what all the services are being run underneath the right. uh, road. So the road's actually on a deck, and you can stand up underneath and service the tunnel. Well, that was my follow-up question: was, don't you just have to fill it half back in? No, again? so this time uh, it was quite again unique design. So um, all the services are running underneath the uh, deck. And you can stand up in there, and so they'll be able to service the tunnel real time instead of having to shut the tunnel because they can. Service so if you had put additional services down it in the future, new fiber, that kind of thing, you, yeah. it can be done relatively easily. Yeah, but the best thing is that we can service it. Why we don't have to close parts of it to to, to hmm. service parts of it. That wasn't where I was going with the question. I genuinely want to know what your favourite sort of infrastructure <laughs> was. But uh. yeah. Yeah. I'm conscious of time, and there is one question that Adrian and I have been pretty keen to to explore um when is uh the beard making a comeback <laughs> and uh we'll we'll <laughs> i swear i to to this question yeah. well i'm a bearded man myself yeah, yeah, yeah. and i thought you were part of the club and, and you've since left the club and i'm hoping that maybe maybe it's coming back so the the beard was associated with a particular deal and and my wife let me keep it uh, well, as long as the deal was running, because you hated it, and, and I, I said it was the good luck charm, which it turned out to be. Um, so uh, I think the only reason it would come back if there was a, 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 a big deal, which I don't see any time in the short term. So uh, I don't think we'll see it come back anytime, uh, anytime soon. Well, I guess I, we can only hope. <laughs> All right, I Scott, liked it. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. No, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.